Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. With you. Thank you. Um, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really honored to be with you uh, this morning. Like Brandon said, uh, three weeks ago, we concluded a sermon a series in the book of 1 Timothy where we, we talked through how um, the church has been created to be a household of God where, um, where who we are in Jesus is formed and matured and lived out. And that series has led us directly into this current series of Redeemed Family. And like Brandon said, uh, Drew walked us beautifully through singleness and dating last week. Brandon is going to be taking us through parenthood next week, so that means that this week I'll be, I've been asked to talk about marriage. And much like Drew said last week, uh, I was intrigued by my appointment to speak on this. Um, what we're going to talk about today is really how culture has understood marriage, how the Bible understands marriage, and how we as a family work to see marriage flourish. Um, just so you know a little bit of, of history, so you know the, the person who's speaking. Um, my wife, Kimberly, and I have been married for a little over 10 years. And the first three years were light speed awful. Um, and we were, it was, it was awful in all the ways that it could be awful. If you think, was it awful like this? Yes, it was awful like that. Um, as a couple, we were empathetically anemic. We were sexually selfish. We were poor friends. And we were spiritual cowards. In other words, meant to be. <laughs> it's true. Just right out of a Nicholas Sparks novel. So, <laughs> Except this particular script was rejected. No wonder. Um, but there were many nights where really where I think that all that was keeping us together was the fact that we had vowed to stay together through worse, for better, for worse. And this most certainly was worse. From screaming matches to sleeping in different beds to driving off in tears, we, we saw it all. Um, there's a bench in our, in our dining room that I threw at Kimberly. And there was a time that I traded emails with an old girlfriend that if God had not brought to light, could have led to something much worse. I tell you that only so that you'll put full confidence and trust in our credibility as a married couple. <laughs> but that, that aside, God has been very sweet to us in our marriage by making it as hard as it was. Because he wouldn't and allow us, he wouldn't and he won't allow us to remain unchanged strangers. Kimberly and I love being married. We love our marriage and we love marriage. Which is honestly not unique to the world because as a culture, as a people, as a globe, we are absolutely in wonder of marriage. If we just look in America alone, $50 billion a year spent on weddings. In Africa, the actual marriage ceremony itself takes four days. In Central America, wedding celebrations can last up to a week. And even with the same-sex marriage debate, there is a desire to take relationships and call them marriage. We love marriage. We love it as a humanity. It's woven into our DNA. But as humans, we tend to employ it for specific ends. For instance, in the West, we have such a love for individual rights and happiness 
that the importance of personal desires and fulfillment overshadow everything. So finding a perfectly compatible soulmate who fulfills me in every single way is the key. A person who won't change me, a person who won't limit me, they won't tie me down, they won't put me in a straitjacket. Someone who just accepts me as me and encourages me to be me. And if I don't get that, if we don't get that, then we run the risk of losing who we are and what we want, which is really what worries us a lot about marriage in general. In the West, ultimately, marriage has to fulfill me and who I am. It has to. It's that important. Because it's about me. It's about me realizing my full potential as a person through romance. And if it does do that, then marriage is good. And if it doesn't do that, then I need to consider my options. But there are other cultures that value marriage because it fortifies the family and not necessarily the individual. In fact, the importance of the larger collective overshadows the wants and desires of the individual. And in those cultures, you're not, you're not, you don't have an identity until you're married. You have no choice. Uh, you have no place. You, you're an anomaly. You have no chance at a lineage. You can't be taken seriously or being seen as an adult until you're married. But if someone is willing to tie their lives to yours, then you're somebody. But here's the thing. There are huge problems with both of these. Namely, the enormous amount of pressure to stay attractive on all fronts. Sexual and relational compatibility are kings in the West. That is, that is the, those are the big markers on how we decide whether or not this relationship is worth pursuing. Are we sexually compatible? Are we relationally compatible? Okay, then we can get into the other things. We have to remain fulfilled and stay fulfilling to another person and imagine the amount of pressure, think about the amount of pressure that we put on ourselves. The Bible has a very different take on marriage, drastically different than what we've seen culturally, historically, or currently. It's grander and deeper than we think. And at its heartbeat is the giving up of self-fulfillment. If you're married... You should definitely pay attention today. If you're single, if you're divorced, wherever you are, whoever you are, this message is for you. It's not just for those who are married. It's for all of us. Because Paul, what he is going to describe is a blueprint for our whole lives. And when we dive into these verses in particular, it's going to be important for us to remember the context of Paul's letter, where Ephesians 5 actually falls in this entire letter. The directive that he's giving to wives and husbands here has to be seen in the light of a few things. That in and through Christ we are adopted children, holy and blameless in front of God. And that when Jesus saved us and we found faith, it was all a gift of grace. With the church, we the church, are all one in Christ and we live together to know the greatness of God's love. So with that in mind, with that reality in mind, let's read, let's jump into this text and listen to what Paul is calling us to do. And we're just going to start at the very beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So this is a heavy text. And I don't, want to, I don't want to proceed presumptuously because I know that probably a number of people that this, is, that this particular text has been difficult, it's been hurtful, it's been used in a hurtful manner. So I do want to be tender with words like submit and phrases like the husband is the head of the wife. We can already be set to check out, but I really want us to notice something. That Paul's instruction on how wives should relate to their husbands is invariably linked to how they should relate to Jesus. So let's read it this way. Submit to your own husbands. In what way? As to the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. In what way? In the way that Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now where, where is Paul getting this from? Because honestly, we're diving into this. He, he says this, he's talking about the church, he's talking about how we're going to live in purity, we're going we're to flee sexual morality, and then he says this. He transitions, he transitions into this as if his readers understand what he's talking about, where he's going, which is why we need to look at the first marriage ever to get a better understanding of what he's talking about. So let's go back to Genesis 2 and take a look at that. I'm going to jump around but let me read this. Let me read this over us. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the creation story shows us the intended roles for men and women within marriage. The reason that Paul is asking wives to submit to their husbands is because God intended them to be fitting helpers to their husbands. The word helper here is the same word that's used in Psalm 46 to describe God. He is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. The man needs the woman to be complete. Husbands, you need your wives to be complete. Wives, you are there to complete your husbands. Now the word for submit carries the implication of a voluntary yieldedness to a recognized authority. That's what, the, that's what that Greek word means. But what I find incredibly important is not just what Paul asks wives to do, but why he asks them to do it. The reason that he asks wives to submit and to be fitting helpers is so that husbands won't be alone and incomplete and that the gospel of Jesus will be communicated. Wives, you have been given to your husbands as a gift from God 
so that they would be supported in such a way as to reach their full potential as men of God. See, according to Scripture, you were made from the same God, but you were made in a different way. God formed Adam out of the dust, and then he took woman out of man. You belong together. You are absolutely equal. But equality does not mean sameness. I think it's very important that we consider not only that we were created, but how we were created. Both image bearers of God. Wives, your role is to honor, affirm, and yield to your husband's authority and leadership. It's an attitude that says, I love it when you take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for me and lead with love. I don't do well when you're passive or when you manipulate or when you dominate me. Fundamentally, this act of submission is an act of obedience to Jesus. It's a yielding and ultimately a yielding to the headship of Christ. So what Paul is doing is asking wives to put their husband's will before their own so that their husbands might flourish in their design. But this is absolutely not an inferior person submitting to a superior person. That's absolutely untrue. It is a wife living out her God-appointed design and role so that her husband will be respected and grow as a husband. Submission is how a wife gives herself up for the good of her husband. A sidebar, because this is a huge topic, can I just say a few things? Submission does not mean agreeing with everything that your husband says. It does not mean following your husband into sin. It does not mean being passive or silent. It doesn't mean putting the will of your husband above the will of God. It absolutely does not mean operating in fear. So how does this look on the ground? I thought about, think, I thought about like, what directives could I give? Like, what, is it, what does it look like to submit? We should be doing this, this, and this. And I thought, I think it's better if we just ask some questions. If we just ask these questions. Song of Solomon in the, in the eighth chapter records Solomon's wife saying this, I was in his eyes as one who brings out peace. The word there for peace is shalom. It's rest. It's contentment. Wives, does your husband see you as a place where he can rest? Do you cultivate peace in your marriage and in your home? Are you, or are you regularly discontent with him, with you, with life? How do you provide affirmation and encouragement to him? What does that look like in your marriage? Is it words? Is it gifts? Is it affection? Is it service? How do you regularly remind him of his identity in Christ? Do you know his gifts? Do you know where his sin comes up? In what ways do you strive to be dependable and trustworthy? Can he count on you? Are you struggling to, to be a are you struggling in being a we and still trying to be a me? 
Is it difficult there? Have you shown confidence in his decisions? Do you find yourself against his decisions and against his reasoning most often? Do you know how he feels respected? Have you asked him that? Let's keep moving. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So while the command for wives is to submit to their husbands, the command for husbands is to love, to nourish, and to cherish our wives. So Paul says, a husband exercises his headship, his authority, as he uses it for the good of his wife. Husbands are never commanded to rule over their wives, but to serve through love. Headship is never portrayed, ever, as a means for self-fulfillment or self-actualization. Headship, just like submission, is other-oriented. It is, it is employed and used for the good of the other person. And it is a direct imitation of Christ. Husbands, you are not a superior person over an inferior person. Your responsibility as a husband is to give your life to the love and service of your wife. It's not about making all the decisions in your marriage. It's not about handing out all the commands and setting all the rules in your house. That assumes that headship is a right and not a responsibility. If it is a right, then we can feel like we've earned it. And that leads to pride. But if it's a responsibility, then it's something that we've been given. And gifts always lead to humility. Paul directs husbands to love their wives, but then he qualifies it. It's something that Christ has already done. Christ has loved her, given himself for her, cleansed her, sanctified her, so as to present her to himself perfect. So what does that mean for us? It means that your love for your wife is not idle. Love and the giving up of yourself is active and with purpose. And the ultimate end of adoring your wife and talking to her about Jesus and knowing her and responding, and responding to her is so that you might not only imitate Christ, but join Christ in the work that he's already doing. Because in the same way that Christ cares for each member of his church, in doing so, you carry out your role of authority for God and for your wife. Husbands, you have authority, but you take it and you lay it down in order that your wife might thrive in who she's called to be. If submission is putting your husband's will ahead of your own, husbands, 
Headship is putting your wife's interests ahead of your own. And can I throw out this just as a clarification? Both a wife's submission and a husband's love are unconditional. Your husband doesn't earn your respect. You give it. Your wife doesn't earn your love. You give it. If you look at these commands, it doesn't say as long as they do their part or until they stop doing their part. It says, no, this is for you. Wives, you do this as if you're doing it for God. As if it's for His glory, because it is. Men, love your wives like this, because it's actually being done unto God. It's exercised regardless of spousal performance, and that's huge. That's absolutely counter to everything in our culture. So how does this look on the ground? I'd love to ask a few more questions. Song of Solomon records his wife saying, His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk sitting beside a full pool. You feel that, like that peace and richness and cherishedness and fullness? Husbands, does your wife feel cherished and delighted in by you? Does she feel nourished in the truth of God and His Word? Are you a place of peace for her? How do you invite your wife's opinions, her responses, her perspective and input on a regular basis? And if her view or opinion or insight is wiser or better than yours, do you listen and respond? What are her desires? What are her plans? What are her gifts? How are you currently giving room for her to use those gifts and carry out those plans? Where does her sin show up most often? Are you helping guard her in loving and appropriate ways from sin? Have you asked her how she desires to be led in the marriage? I think that's very important. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, I, I don't know how to lead. And wives are saying, I don't know how to respect. And I'm just encouraging you, just talk to one another. How do you feel respected? Gosh, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. How do you feel led? Well, I'd love it if you did this, this, and this. Instead of us just working so hard, I feel like I'm leading and she's not responding. I feel like I'm respecting and he's not responding. Talk to one another. This is a different marriage than what the world wants to have because it's not about seeking your own fulfillment. It's absolutely about seeking the fulfillment and growth of another person. It's other-oriented. My life for yours. My life for your betterment. It's absolutely about fulfillment about seeking the fulfillment of another person. Paul is saying, in asking you to operate this way, I'm inviting husbands and wives to live into their God-given wiring, to live this life that God intended, where peace would be known and shared. Now see, the call to lay down our lives for one another sounds wonderful to us, and I know that we love romance, and we love self-sacrifice, and heroes, and, and yet really, when it 
when it's no longer theory and it really is about us laying down our lives, that's where I, I know we see it break down. Our hearts and our souls sort of push back on that. And the main reason that we don't live this out is because we are overly burdened with the weight of self-fulfillment. We're way too busy propping ourselves up over others and using others to do that. So we see submission as being subservient. It's snuffing out all that I want. It's snuffing out all that I am. We're so consumed with self that submission is repurposed to either codependence, where I can't live without you, or sort of like seductive manipulation, where I just sort of stay quiet, but I manipulate you into doing, doing what I want. We see headship as a place of power and we end up twisting it where we either dominate our wives or we sit by passively. We never engage. What was meant to be for the good of another is ultimately used for the good of us, either our comfort, our power. And when marriage is really about me, we're not hoping to wash one another in the water of God's word as Paul was talking about. No, we end up, if this makes sense to you, we end up washing each other in the water of our own expectation. Instead of pointing them to Christ and reminding them of, of their identity in Jesus, we stand each other up in front of the mirror of our own requirements and attempt to shape and sand that person into an image that's pleasing to us. And the burden of self and self-fulfillment continues to be fed. You know what, and even when we do this effectively, even when we do love someone selflessly, it doesn't, it doesn't just change our hearts to be told, this is what you should do. Go and do this and things will go well. See, what we need, what we desperately need is to be loved in such a way and served in such a way that it completely changes who we are at our core. And Paul lets us in on the mystery of how that can happen to us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, Paul is saying marriage was a mystery. It's been, it was a mystery. When God created it, people didn't know that it was a picture of something else. But when Jesus came and rescued his church through his death and resurrection, it became clear what marriage was mirroring all this time. It's only in and through the person and love of Jesus that we have the hope of being loved and cherished in such a way that the burden of self-fulfillment is blown apart. And we can actually live to see our spouses flourish as we give up our lives for them. See, this is, listen to this. I just want to read this over you. This is what Jesus did. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Jesus, this is what we see. Perfect headship and perfect submission. He's the head of the church, and yet he laid down his life so that the church would flourish. He is the picture of submission. He came to the Father and submitted his will so that the Father would be glorified. And in that glorification, the Father would share his glory with his Son. The gospel news is that Jesus, the superior person, became the inferior person, weak, ugly, and poor, so that all who would come to trust him would be made perfect and rich before God. See, in submission to the Father, he lived a sinless life. In his obedience, he earned all of the riches of eternal life. And on the cross, he took all of our selfishness and he shared all of his riches with you. Do you feel that? Do you hear that? That Jesus has loved you and cherished you to such a high office that you don't have to worry about you anymore. What you won't get or what you'll miss out on because through him, what are you? You're holy. You're different. You're set apart. You're blameless. No one can bring a charge against you. You're spotless. No wrinkles. You're beautiful. You're perfect. You're clean. Your sins have been removed. You've been cherished by him, loved by him, valued by him. This is what he this is what he did. This is from Ezekiel. When I passed by you again, this is God talking to his people. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. And if we really catch that, we will be freed evermore from searching for the perfect mate. We have found it in Christ He has loved you into perfection. He's loved you into one flesh. We are one with Him. So what does that mean for us as a redeemed family? What does that mean, what does that mean for marriage here at Sojourn, part of this family? What do we do now? To the degree in which we see and believe that Jesus did lay his life down is the degree to which we will be willing to lay our lives down for one another. Just a small observation. There's something that Drew mentioned last week. He just says, man, Christ comes up in this passage almost every verse. 
huge implication. We can't do anything without him, and everything we do is for him, and through him, and by him. Everything. There's nothing that we do that's outside of him. It's all about him. And what we do as a church with our marriages is for the ultimate good of Jesus. Because that's what Paul is saying. Look, all of our marriages, it's a picture of what Jesus has done for his church and how the church responds to what he's done. So what does this mean? I just I want to close with these Essentially, just these observations for what this means for us on the ground at Sojourn. This means that every marriage, whether struggling or strong, is a walking, talking explanation and defense of what Jesus has done. That Jesus is real. And I want you to remember who's talking. I want you to remember the shambles that my marriage was in. And it was the grace of God to share that with people and say, this is who we are. This is where we are. As if to let people know, you mean Jesus welcomes idiots and hypocrites? Yes, he does. Isn't that amazing that he would welcome idiots? That he would welcome people who bring reproach upon him. It means that when we lay down our interests and preferences for each other, that we live in line with Christ. Husbands, wives, sojourners, single, whoever you are, your life was meant to be spent in the service of others so that you would be freed by God's grace from worrying about you so much that you forget about everyone else. Your gifts, your talents, your time, your resources are not there just so that you'll know that God is good to you, but so that in using those gifts for the common good, that others would know that God is good to them. As parishes, we should be washing one another and the marriages in our parishes in the water of the Word of God, the truth of the Gospel, and it should be rinse and repeat over and over and over and over, we talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. If you're married, I really want to encourage you, open the doors of your home and your marriage to singles and other married couples. And I don't care if it's bad, mediocre, great, spectacular, unspeakable. You open the door on that. And you let people in to see what your marriage is like. Because I'll tell you again, it's an opportunity to say, this is how gracious God is to us in our marriage, whether it's good or bad. We will fight the tendency to shape people into who we want them to be for our own purposes and put them before God so that he might shape them for his good purposes. It means that we view marriage between a man and a woman as the right and good living reflection of Christ and the church. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction and feel like the church and God is trying to deny you family and love and closeness, 
We're actually trying to live family as the greatest family. And if you want to, you can step into this family. And I promise you that family and love will never be denied you. If you go, this is encouragement. Really, this is... I know this is encouragement for us all. It may sound like it's just for particular people, but I want you to hear this. If we go this whole life, if you go this whole life without getting married, can I promise you that in eternity, you won't miss a thing? This is what I love about the ascension. This is what I love about the ascension. I think it doesn't get nearly as much airtime as it should because it's Jesus the human being, the glorified man going to heaven. Do you know what that means? That means that at the wedding supper, there will be a real Jesus with, with real arms and a real heart that will love you, a real mind that will know you. It won't be this dream state. We will be fully known and fully know him. You won't miss anything. Marriage, love, community, closeness, understanding, compatibility, they're all foretastes of what's to come. It can be good here with flashes of great, but with Jesus in eternity, it will be beyond anything that we've ever known. And I want to, if you're single and you know the gospel, you have every right and every freedom to speak into a marriage. Please do that. I don't know what it's like to be married. Do you know what it's like to be selfish? Do you know what it's like to want to kill another person? You're qualified. Please speak into marriages. If you know the gospel, then you're well qualified. If you know your sin, you're well qualified. And finally, husbands and wives, you should become, here at Sojourn, I, I want us to become students of one another. Husbands and wives, in listening to each other's desires and hearts, that you would respond to one another. Is your wife desperate for something in particular that's not sinful? Are you listening to her and responding to her? Does your husband want something, desire something, and it's not sinful? Are you responding? Are you listening to him? In the same way that Christ has responded to you. Perhaps this is an opportunity to communicate the gospel as you put your husband's desires ahead of your own or as you place your wife's hopes ahead of your own. You know, in all of this, the thing that keeps thing that keeps hitting me is that when I when I when I when I read this and I thought, man, this is this is really hard. This is a really difficult text in the way of the directive. But the great thing is is that God will be faithful to grow you husband. God will be faithful to grow you wife. You don't have to get this right day one. 
All of our attempts at holiness are like the walk to Golgotha, just stumbling along. And by God's grace, we will get there. And guess what? We get to do it as a family, in a family. And that's good news. Let me pray for us.